Welcome to the Faith Community Church Podcast, a ministry of Faith Community Church in South Boston, Virginia. This week, we have a special guest with us to encourage you to deepen your faith in Jesus Christ. Well, good morning. It's good to be back this morning. Uh, Y'all pray for me. My wife is not here, and so I can't get any looks in the sermon when I start to say anything or go over time. Uh, So uh, y'all just be praying uh, for the next couple minutes here. Uh, If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn them with me to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to continue our study in the book of Ephesians, and we're going to be beginning in verse 15, looking through verses 23. So Ephesians 1, 15 through 23 this morning. Ephesians 1, 15, I will begin here. This is the word of the Lord. For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Would you pray with me real quick? Psalm 42, 1 through 2 says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God. For the living God, when shall I come and appear before God? Lord, we have gathered this morning and we have come to appear before you with longing and thirsty souls, wanting to know you more, wanting to be in your presence, longing to experience God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in our lives and in the lives of our church. So we pray, Lord, at the next few minutes that you would speak uh, and that I would speak clearly so as not to muddy the message uh, in these couple verses. Lord, we love you and we thank you for these next few minutes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, One of the privileges of being in seminary is that I get to study God. I get to read books. thick uh, volumes of books about the attributes of God, about different aspects of theology, church history, uh, the debates that have happened over the past 2,000 years. 
I am immersed every day in the study of God. It is a wonderful gift and a task that I have been privileged to be a part of, and yet... Uh, one, of the, one of the downfalls or one of the weaknesses or areas of being a seminary student that often seminary students fall into the trap of is that because we study God, we know of God. I have met and interacted with a number of seminary students, a number of professors, uh, and, and one thing I find in common, one thing I have had to learn Uh, as my time as a seminary student, is there is a big difference between knowing about God and knowing of God. It is one thing to know about God's providence and another thing entirely to know of God's providence. Uh, it It is one thing to know about God's holiness and another thing to know of God's holiness, to partake in that holiness and to live according to who God is. There is a big difference between knowing about God and knowing of God. And so Paul's prayer here this morning in verses 15 through 23 is after he has laid out the foundation of the gospel in verses 3 through 14, that now that they have been sealed with the Holy Spirit after their response of the truths of the gospel, his prayer now, he moves from praise to prayer that they would know God, that they would deeply, with an intimate knowledge, not just a book knowledge, not just a seminary knowledge of God, but a spirit-revealed, spirit-filled knowledge about who God is. And so that's the call this morning. The call this morning and the point of, of, of this entire message, I'm, I'm, it, I think if you're starting to notice a trend, I'm always going to give you the point of my message right in the beginning, so that way if I start to rabbit trail from the point, somebody can give me a look and say, hey, you're rabbit trailing. Um, but the point of this morning is that God has called us to experience him more fully. That's the point. God has it called us to experience him more fully. So how do we... How do we do that? How do we experience our God, our triune God, more fully? Uh, Because it's very different. Paul's going to lay out something. He's going to pray for something very different. And a lot of other religions or worldview to experience God uh, is to perform some ritual, uh, is to uh, know secret uh, knowledge uh, that only is available for the elite. Sometimes that's how people treat seminary students too, which is a little weird. Um, But... That's not what Paul's formula is to experience and to know God. Paul, um, Paul's prayer to know God is actually based on their increasing knowledge of what they've already been told. It's an increasing knowledge of what they've already been told. So here are three ways that I think the text lays out before us how we can experience God more fully. Look at, uh, let's begin in verse 15. Let's just look at Paul's uh, introduction to his prayer. He says, for this reason, and of course that reason is everything Paul just uh, laid out in verses 3 through 14. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. So Paul says, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I have heard of your love for all the saints. In other words, and he thanks God for this. In other words, he has heard that the gospel has produced fruit in the lives of the church. 
the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is directly connected to the love toward all the saints. And so it's not that they just know everything that Paul just preached to them, but they're actually living everything Paul just preached to them. So he gives thanks and he says in verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And so here's the prayer. Here's the, here, the first way that we uh, experience God more fully is that we grow in our knowledge of what God has given us. We grow in our knowledge of what God has given us. Look at verses 17 through 18. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. So Paul is praying to, to God the Father that through God the Spirit, the believers might have a deepening, increasing knowledge of everything that they've already been given. He says in verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Well, what's the hope that God has called us to? Well, all we have to do is look through verses 3 through 14 because that is the hope that Paul is referring to in verse 18. It is the adoption, it is the sonship and the daughtership that we have. And I said last week I made up daughtership for those of you who weren't here. Um, it is the position that we have. It is the relationship that we have to God the Father through Christ the Son. It is a deepening understanding of our intimacy with Him through His Son. It is the fact that we are children of God. It is also the fact that we have been redeemed through the blood of Jesus, that we have been called to freedom, that we have been forgiven completely, totally past, present, and future of every one of our sins has been blotted out. And it is also to know that the Holy Spirit that has been given to us seals us, keeps us, and also teaches us. So the hope that we've been called to is a, is a, is a new name in God, and it is a new family. We've been, I, last week I, I mentioned how the adoption by God the Father actually means, it implies that if we're adopted by God the Father, then we are part of a new family. We have a new family that we are a part of. And so uh, it's one thing to know about everything Paul just said in verses 3 through 14. It's an entirely different thing to live it, to grow in it, to understand it, to comprehend it. This is, like I said, verses 3 through 14 last week is a big run on sentence. So Paul was not anticipating after that big run-on sentence that the letter of Ephesians would be read one time in the hearing and the gathering and that the believers would automatically grasp and understand all the implications that verses 3 through 14 actually uh, had for them. So Paul says, my prayer for you is that you would know that God would, notice he says that uh, the, the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom. What does that mean there? Because in verse 13, uh, Paul had said that they were sealed with the Holy Spirit, right? And then he says now that he's praying that God would give them the spirit of wisdom. So is Paul, is Paul confused now all of a sudden because he said you're sealed so the Spirit's not going anywhere and now he's asking that the Spirit of knowledge and wisdom and revelation be given to them? Which one is it? Well, I think the answer, anytime we look at Scripture, we always want to make sure that we're interpreting Scripture by other Scripture. 
And so when Paul refers to, most of your translations should have the spirit of wisdom, the spirit capitalized there, so as not to confuse that Paul is referring to that we would have a wise spirit, that it would be our spirit, but the Holy Spirit giving the wisdom and uh, revelation. But what Paul is asking for right here, based on the ministry of the spirit in the lives of believers, is that the ministry, the teaching ministry, the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit would be at work and active and stirred up in the faith community. So it's, it's not that Paul contradicted himself in verse 13, and now he's saying something completely different in verse 17, that God would give them the spirit of wisdom. What Paul is saying, essentially, is that he's praying that the spirit would bring them into further knowledge and depth and wisdom of God in triune, because it is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Notice verse 17, the wisdom and the revelation of God is in the knowledge of God, and God himself brings about that knowledge and wisdom and application in the life of the believer. In other words, there is no room. You might be thinking, okay, so what's the point of all of that? So what? In other words, there is no room for complacency in the Christian life. If you are where you were in your walk with God 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 5 years ago, 1 month ago, if you were in the same place that you were in your understanding of the gospel and its implications in your life, if the fruit has ceased to bear then at a fundamental level, we reject the ministry of the Spirit of God at work in us. Paul is calling for a constant growth in their salvation, the hope that they've been called to. And not just so we could be uh, book smart. That's, that's not the, the same. What I'm not calling for is everybody being a seminary student or a theologian, a professional theologian. I'm just talking about normal, everyday Christians because that's who Paul's writing to, and that's who God is speaking to. So Paul is saying uh, that your knowledge of God should go further and further and further every single day. Your experience of God and all of who he is and all that he has given you should increased should deepen because the Spirit of God indwells in you. And this is not knowledge just so we can be the smartest person in the room because sometimes our knowledge and our experience and our understanding of the Godhead and his work in our lives actually sometimes is the benefit for the, benefit for the person sitting next to you. So I, I personally, I don't see my seminary uh, years or even my sermon preparation or even anything that I experience of God, it's not solely for my own benefit, but it is for the other family members in which God has adopted me into. So knowing God is for your growth, but it's also for the comfort and growth of everybody around you, everybody that you come in contact with. So the first way that we experience God more fully is really just a deepening understanding and knowledge and outliving application of all that we've already been told and our, everything that we've already professed to believe in. If God is infinite and all-wise and all-powerful, 
and we are his creation. That means we are none of those things and therefore we will never get to the bottom of the depth of who God is. And so we are invited not to figure everything out or not to have everything tied in a neat bow in a little box and to halt our growth in God, but we are called, God invites us into this lifelong journey of knowing him, knowing about him, experiencing him, and trusting him further and further and further as we go. The gospel is simple, friends, but it is not shallow. And so we don't need to stay in the shallow end of the pool. We can go out further and further and further. And the further we go, the more we have to trust. The more we have to trust, the more we're going to lean on his understanding. The more we do that, the more we're just going to look and be more like Jesus. So we experience God more fully when we grow in our knowledge of everything uh, that we already know that he has done through the gospel and who he is and who he's revealed himself to be. The second way that we grow or that we uh, experience God more fully is when we grow in our knowledge of God's affection for us. Look at verse uh, 18b or the second part of 18. Uh, Paul uh, says that not only does he pray that they would have their hearts enlightened, that they might know what is the hope to which he's called them, but also what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Notice Paul doesn't say, uh, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance waiting for you or your glorious inheritance? Because he's already mentioned that uh, in verse 11. He's talked about our inheritance and now it's shifted here to God's inheritance. And what is God's inheritance? Well, his inheritance is the saints. Who are the saints? Well, the saints are you. The saints are not elites who have attained a certain amount of good works. Notice, uh, going all the way back to verse 1, when Paul addresses the church in Ephesus, he says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So what does it mean to be a saint? To be a saint is to just be in Christ Jesus, to be identified with the Son of God. And so Paul says, if that is you, his delight and his possession and his inheritance is you. God's the God who owns everything, the God who created everything, considers you stumbling, frail, weak sinner, confused, finite, considers you to be his glorious inheritance. That can make us a little bit uncomfortable for two reasons. One, because sin is so marred our understanding, our, our frailty and, 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 and weaknesses mar our understanding and the visibility of the glory of Christ in the gospel and, and what that does for us, what that makes us. So, and then the sin of others as we've kind of grown up, as we've walked through life, uh, can, can mar the understanding that God has lavished, that Paul says in verse 8, uh, this this grace, this forgiveness, this love upon us. And so it can make us uncomfortable to say that God rejoices, delights, and considers me 
considers you his most glorious inheritance, his most glorious possession. So it can make us uncomfortable uh, because sometimes we don't feel that way. We don't feel like saints all the time because we're still dealing with sin. And another reason why this might make us uncomfortable is because, well, doesn't that sound like a me-centered gospel? You're telling me that God looks at me, God looks at all of us and says, my most glorious possession and prize. And that doesn't sound like a me-centered gospel? Exactly. It, it's not. It's a Christ-centered gospel because the reason God values and treasures and loves and sees us as his most prized possession is because of the position we have in his son. So it's not saying that God uh, delights in you, loves you, uh, it cherishes you, and nourishes you because you in and of yourself have anything inside of you that is treasurable or amazing and wonderful in the sight of the all-amazing, all-wonderful, self-sufficient God. It is the fact that he has set his love upon you out of his own initiative, and the Son, the second person of the Godhead, that Son that God so loves that Jesus talks about so often in the Gospel of John, this, this amazing, eternal, divine love has been placed on you because you have been placed in the Son. And so therefore, you and us collectively, as the church of God, is God's most cherished, prized possession. Psalm 147.11 says, The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. That is a thought that God, God's greatest possession, you in Christ, that is a thought that you could dwell on your entire life and you'll never exhaust the riches and treasure out of that truth as long as you're alive. So we experience God more fully when we grow in our knowledge of God's affection for us, his, his delight over us, his, his, his call upon our lives, our value that we have in Christ. This radically changes the way we experience God. This radically changes. Here's a question. Again, Ephesians places such a high emphasis on the church because God places such a high emphasis on the church, his people. He places such a high emphasis, such value on the people that he's called. Another reason why this is not a, a me-centered gospel, the fact that the Bible teaches that God, God looks at you and says, my greatest treasure, my greatest possession, is because it's not just about you as an individual. It's about the people. It's about the body of Christ. It's about us. Notice again, all throughout chapter 1, the us, 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 us. So the reason why we can confidently say, yes, God values, desires, I am his greatest possession because I have been placed within the eternal son of God, his body. I have been in there. And so if God places such a high value on his people, do you place 
a high value on God's people. Do you value the church of God or is, just, is the church just an option for you every week? Is it merely an obligation? Do you love the saints with the same affection despite her imperfections? Look, notice in verse 15 when Paul begins, he says, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but he doesn't stop there because there is no such thing as a person who has faith increasing in the Lord Jesus Christ without love increasing for all his saints. So if he hears of a church's faith in Jesus, then he's also automatically going to hear of the love that they have for all the saints. And notice, it's all of them. It's not the ones that you uh, want to love. It's every single one. It's the one that's the most difficult to love. In, in the churches surrounding Ephesus, it would have been a Jew and Gentile uh, community. And we're going to see this further on as we get into the book of Ephesians, is that's God's marvelous mystery, is that he would take two different groups of people. And we're going to see in the Bible, too, there really is only two groups of people. There's only Jew and Gentile. And it's the same today, because those are the only two distinctions that God makes in his word. And yet he brings the two groups together, places them in a community that he values and loves and considers his inheritance. And for us to then look at the church of God and say, you are optional to me, is to look Look at God and reject everything that he has set his heart on. So if God places such a high value on the church, do you place such a high value on the church? I'm not talking about church institution. I'm, I'm talking about the body of Jesus. His body, his, his redeemed people that he laid his life down and shed his blood for so that they might know freedom and love and victory in him. So we grow in our experience. We know uh, we experience God more fully when we grow in our knowledge of God's affection for us as the church, as his people, and last, uh, we experience God more fully when we grow in our knowledge of God's work in us. Look at verses 19 through 23. So Paul, in his threefold requests, in his prayer, says he, he, he ends it with, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. In other words, Paul is saying you grow in your experience, you experience God more fully when you grow in your knowledge of the fact that the same power that raised Christ from the dead and not only raised Christ from the dead but exalted him into the heavenly places is the same power that indwells each and every single one of his saints. 
You grow in your experience. You, you come to know and experience God more fully when you realize that it does not matter what power seems to be at work outside of you or inside of you. The greater power of resurrection and exaltation is the one that's prominent in your life, whether you recognize that or not. I mean, there are seasons that I have been through, and we can probably all attest to, uh, where, where we allow the powers of sin, of darkness, of deception, and of defeat to shape and mold and dictate our lives as if they have the final say, all the while forgetting the fact that God has made you new in Christ, raised you in the heavenly places with Christ, and has the same resurrection exaltation power working within you now. Uh, if, you are ever, um, if you ever read the book, The Pilgrim's Progress, uh, if you haven't read that, I encourage you uh, to, to read it. It would be re- uh, worth reading through. But there's a scene in The Pilgrim's Progress where the pilgrim and his friend Hopeful are journeying to the celestial city, uh, which is just an allegory for heaven. And as you read through the book, you start to experience and encounter all the obstacles and difficulties and and everything that Pilgrim and his companions face as they work towards the celestial city. And in one part of the journey, they come to a place called Doubting Castle. And who runs Doubting Castle? None other than giant despair. And they find themselves getting caught and enslaved and uh, trapped in the power of Doubting Castle and giant despair. And so there's this whole scene in the book where where Pilgrim gets so down into despair and that shapes his identity as a person in his situation that he actually for a second thinks about calling it quits. I don't mean he's just going to walk away from the faith and deconstruct or something like that. Pilgrim is at the lowest of his low. He wants out of life. And it takes Hopeful to remind him, why are we sitting in this place? Brother, why are we sitting in Doubting Castle under the control of giant despair when the key out of this place is right here? And so Pilgrim, or Christian as his name is, looks down and he sees this tiny little key for the first time. And it's been with him the entire time. And then they free themselves out of the grips of the fortified doubt and despair and onto the celestial city. You know, sometimes we live in Doubting Castle controlled by giant despair. And it can be caused by a number of things. It can be caused by watching too much of the news. It can be caused uh, by listening uh, to... It can be caused by listening to too many critics. It can be caused by listening to uh, ourselves. It can be caused by life just kind of piling up one after another, after another, trial after trial, suffering after suffering, disappointment after disappointment, regret after regret, the past haunting you and doesn't seem to keep leaving you alone. And all the while, indwelling within the body of Jesus is the same power that raised the body of Jesus. 
It doesn't matter what, if you think whatever you're struggling with right now, whether sin, whether regret, whether, whether disappointment, whether some external force is, is strong enough to snuff out the joy and the hope and the position that you have in Jesus, friends, remember that this is not an if or maybe where you have to do something at this point to call down this power. This power already indwells you. It is yours. You have complete access to it. We remember, we just sang of it. You, he has overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. Every victory is his victory. So do you know the power at work in you? And look, this takes a lifetime of walking with Jesus. This is not something one sermon or one textbook or seminary credits is going to get you. This is going to take walking in the valley of the shadow of death with the shepherd who doesn't ever leave you. This takes knowing God at a level that only comes by walking with him. By walking along the side of his sheep, his people, your brothers, your sisters, understanding at a deeper level that God is your father and you are his son and daughter through Christ. This is, uh, Christianity is not just a set of ideas. I like to say it all the time. It's not just a philosophy. It is not just a principle. It is not a moral lifestyle. It is, being, it is knowing the triune God of the Bible who has made himself known and has called and redeemed you to be his people. It is Jesus Christ crucified. It is Jesus Christ's righteousness applied to us in faith by the grace of God. It is him raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of the Father right now, working in his church through his spirit right now. There have been powers that have tried to snuff out the church for about 2,000 and something years now, and it just keeps growing. I had a conversation with a gentleman over the weekend who recently left the faith, now identifies as an agnostic atheist, uh, which there's a little bit of worldview issues right there. I'm not sure how you get both, best of both worlds, but, you know. Um, but, you know, I, I decided to enter into a conversation, uh, an apologetic kind of conversation of kind of figuring out what caused him to walk away. And uh, we got into some historical stuff that we were talking about. And, and, and finally, I, I asked the question. He made a comment. He said, the church only grew the way it grew after Constantine's conversion in 314 or 317 or something like that. And I thought that was an interesting statement because I said, well, what do you do with the rest of 300 years of church history prior to Constantine's conversion where the church was booming? And I said, not only that, but what do you do with the church's growth right now where there is no political favor like the church gained in Constantine's conversion. So I asked, said, what happened to the church prior to Constantine? Was it not growing, which we can make a case historically, and in the New Testament um, that it was? And then what do you do in states and countries right now where it is illegal to be a Christian and yet it's the gr fastest growing population? And he didn't have an answer for me. I, his answer was, I don't know why people in China and in Asia and in Africa are converting to the faith. 
he even went so far as to say, I don't know why the Apostle Paul converted to the faith. Because if you remember in Philippians 3, Paul lists everything that he had prior to coming to the faith. And then he, one day, by the grace of God, saw the infinite worth and beauty of Jesus and saw all of the stuff that he had, including his own righteousness, was literally dung, as the Greek word in that passage puts it. These are people who understand that the power, the, the powers of this world, the authorities, the dominions, the names that give themselves a name, they have been at work in the world ever since the cross and the crucifixion and the resurrection, and yet the power that works in the church is greater. The name that works within the church and advocates for her and loves her and laid his life down for her is greater than any name in the names, history of names. And so Paul prays desperately. If you want to pray for one another this week, pray this prayer of Paul. Pray that your brothers and sisters, pray that you yourself would know God, experience God by knowing the hope to which he's called you and by knowing the affection he's placed on you and by knowing the power that works within each and every single one of you. You want to love one another more deeply, just look at the person next to you and say, man, God's power is working deeply in you. And so it doesn't matter that this person said this to me, did this to me, thinks this way differently than me, because we're all his workmanship. We all have that power indwelling with us, and each and every single one of us have been redeemed. And we've all been seated in the heavenly places with Christ. Lastly, verses 22 through 23, and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. If you feel empty this morning, I'm here to remind you, verse 23, that Jesus fills all in all. Jesus fills. You want to know God? God has made himself known. And he has provided everything for you, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation, and his son who fills all in all in you, in us. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we thank you that growing in our knowledge of you Growing in our experience of you does not have, does not involve jumping through hoops, getting degrees. It purely involves the spirit that you've already sealed within us to give us that wisdom, to teach us, to illumine us. It involves meditating and thinking and praying through what has been revealed. So, Father, I pray that each and every single one of your saints in this room, in Christ, would only go further in their knowledge of their calling, the hope of their calling, that they would grow in their knowledge of the power at work within them, that they would grow in their knowledge of your affection placed upon them, so that we might, that our faith 
would increase in Jesus and that our love for all the saints would also continue to abound. Lord, may you work powerfully in your church and I pray that you would teach us and that we would be teachable because you are the head of each and every single one of us. We are your body. So move us as you will. Shape us as you will. Exercise our, our minds, our hearts, our, our very being so that we might grow into the maturity and the stature and fullness of Jesus who fills all in all. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about Faith Community Church, you can find us online at FCCSobo.org or on our Facebook page by searching Faith Community Church. As always, God loves you, we love you, and we hope you have a wonderful week.